Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Johnston Community College in Smithfield, North Carolina, underwritten by Anchor, where everyone can make a podcast for free. but uh, we'll move through it kind of quickly. I've already gone through and kind of trimmed down some of the slides that focus on the key concepts of the chapter. I do love this chapter, by the way. This is on management and leadership. What's the difference, by the way? Anybody have a, a thought on what's the difference between management and leadership? Any ideas? Are managers always leaders? Why do you say that? That was a quick no, by the way. Yeah, I was like, no, no, no. It can't be true. Why do you say that? There's a lot of managers that won't show you how to do things properly. Uh-huh. But expect you to do them regardless. So they won't show you how to do things properly, but they expect you to do them. Yeah, they'll, they'll stick with you and show you how to do it, regardless of their status or position. They're right there on the front line. Lead by example. I like that. What else? A lot of managers use it as power. I hate that. You know, um, from even back to the day of Roman Empire, power corrupts. You know, and historically, you see this idea that if you give somebody power, even if it's a little bit of power, they become all like high and mighty and like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm the authority and you have to bow to my power. It's amazing like that, that God complex really does kick in sometimes. And if, if somebody has that in their ego, they don't need to be a manager or leader. You know, they just don't. Logan, what do you got? Public execution. Yep. So, um, I've studied the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. I haven't read the complete books. Um, but the part of the, the decline was a lack of good leadership. You know, when you've got somebody that is interested in themselves and not interested in the people, that's going to that's gonna upset folks. And his, what's that? Yeah, and over time, historically, if you look at kingdoms and uh, empires that have fallen, um, he had very poor leadership at the top, you know, so there is something to that. So generally speaking, management is managing processes and people day to day. Leadership is uh, creating a vision for what the future is going to look like and guiding people toward that future. And so like I would be considered a manager here on this campus, but the leader would be the president that sets a tone for this is what we're doing now, but this is what we want to be doing next year, three years, five years from now. This is what we want to grow into, and we're going to lay plans to get us there. And that's what leadership is about. So the learning objectives for this chapter is describe the changes occurring today in the management function, describe the four functions of management, relate the planning process and decision-making to the accomplished, uh, accomplished, I'm sorry, accomplishment of company goals, describe the organizi- organizing function of management, explain the differences between leaders and managers, and describe the various leadership styles, and then summarize the five steps of the control function of management. Because in management, you do have a certain amount of control, but it's not, once again, goes the, that God complex where I'm the boss, you're going to do what I say. Do you respond well to that kind of authority? Nobody does. But, but the odd thing is that a lot of managers still use that type of management philosophy where I'm the boss, you're going to do what I say, or else. 
people don't respond real well to threats. They don't respond well to power trips, anything like that. A better way to approach it to get the same or better outcome is, hey, I need some help with this project, and I know you're really good at this stuff. What would you recommend? And then you listen to that person's recommendation. You get their buy-in, their inputs, and then you make some adjustments maybe that need to be made, maybe offer some uh, other ideas. But autonomy is such an important thing. What is, does anybody know what autonomy means? Absolutely. So autonomy gives people the freedom to choose their own destiny. And there is that's where you find people that are intrinsically motivated because I'm in control of what the outcome is. And I'm proud of the outcome because I had a my hand in it. You know, I was able to create this outcome. So autonomy is very important. And anytime you strip away autonomy, you actually demoralize and demotivate people. Anytime that you can empower people and give them their autonomy, yeah, you're going to have better outcomes, generally speaking. And so managers today tend to be collaborative. I don't want to make a decision without everybody's input. When I came into this department, I told the entire team on day one that this is a co-managed department. I'm here to work with you, not, not um, you know, I'm not expected to be your boss. Um, some of them still call me boss, and I, I consider it a joke, bless you. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't want to be a quote-unquote boss. I want to collaborate and work with my team because the team is a group of professionals and I want them to uh, be respected and feel like they have just as much power, influence, and input as I do. And I usually consult with all of them before we make decisions that are going to impact their, them, themselves or them, their programs. Emphasize team and team building. Guide, train, support, motivate, and coach employees. Need to be skilled communicators and team players and need to be globally prepared. Mean, uh, what do you think it means by globally prepared? So we work in a world now that is ex exceptionally diverse, especially in the United States. We have representation from pretty much all countries on earth. And where, regardless of what culture or country you come from, a manager needs to be able to uh, work with you and, say, and adapt to what your specific needs are. And so globally minded is an important thing. So management is the process used to accomplish Organizational goals through planning, organizing, leading, and controlling. Um, I don't necessarily like that word controlling, but that, in essence, is what it is. We make a plan for what this outcome we need to get to and how to get there. We organize by allocating individuals, resources, time, money, energy into that plan. We lead that process by setting forth an agenda and making sure that everybody is moving towards that outcome. And then we control that process by... If something is not going as it's supposed to, we work to get it back in a line. So well, let's, let's imagine that we're pr producing something, we work in a production facility, and our goal is to make a thousand somethings a day, whatever they may be, and I find that we're only making 900 a day. Well, that means tomorrow we have to make 1,100 to get back on track, or if it stays off track for two days, we've got to make 1,200 to get back on track. So as a manager, you're faced with those real-time challenges of what do we do in order to stay on track and, and hit our outcomes because at the end of the day, the owners, uh, the company shareholders don't care about whatever excuses you got. They don't care that this person called out sick. They don't care that this person has this personal crisis or any of that, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, you're going to deal with all different types of scenarios. 
you still have to figure out a way to make it work. And um, that's, that's what individuals are looking for. That's what organizations and shareholders are looking for is somebody that they can deliver, that they can count on to be responsible and make it happen. And sometimes you have to think outside the box. Um, and, it's, and you have to know that you're going to have to make decisions that are not going to be popular with your team sometimes. It's like, you know, if, if for example, we found out we're having a, um, an event next spring on a Saturday. And I went ahead and told my team about it as soon as I found out about it. I said, hey, guys, we're having an event on a Saturday next spring. It's not for five months. We're going to put it on your calendar, put it on your radar so you know about it. And I'm sure that not everybody's going to be excited to get up and come out here on Saturday, right? But that's just part of what the expectation is to make it work and to do, do what needs to be done. And so transparency is one of the things we'll talk about. Anytime I find out something, I try to get it out to my team as soon as possible. So to elaborate a little bit more, planning, organizing, leading, and controlling. So just in general, planning is setting organizational goals, developing strategies, determining resources, and setting precise standards. Organizing is about allocating allocating those resources, assigning tasks, and establishing procedures for accomplishing goals, preparing a structure, recruiting, selecting, training, and developing employees, and placing employees where they'll be most effective. Leading is guiding and motivating employees to work effectively to accomplish organizational goals, giving assignments, explaining routines, clarifying policies, providing feedback on performance, and this is kind of there, but defining expectations. Give you one other example. We have some advising coming up. Everybody prepared to do advising in the next week? Wonderful. Well, we're going to do some team advising for our CCP students, and um, we've got blocks of time that we are dedicating to that. And I had to communicate to the team on Friday. I said, look, this is the, we're t- changing the plans a little bit to do some block advising for CCP. Everybody, and when I sent it out on Monday for a sign-up sheet, I said, everybody's expected to work one shift. That is the expectation. And so as a, as a manager, as a leader, I have to define what those expectations is and make sure that people are staying in line. When I checked the sign-up, sh- sign-up sheet today, 24 hours later, everybody signed up except for one person. So I emailed that one person specifically and said, hey, I just need you to sign up for one shift. They got it done. We were able to turn that in today and say, hey, we've got this team that's going to be available for these shifts. That's what leading is. It's setting an objective and getting things done. Controlling is measuring results against corporate objectives, monitoring performance relative to standards, rewarding outstanding performance, taking corrective actions when necessary. So... And different employers view things, you know, differently. But what do you think happens if you've got a, a group of 100 individuals at work and everybody knows everybody, everybody kind of keeps up with everybody's business, but they all observe that Tommy comes in late every single day. And you're all paid. You're not paid hourly. You're paid on a salary. So you're all get, let's say you all get paid the same, but Tommy comes in an hour late every single day. What do you think some people are going to start to do after some time is going to happen? What's that? Be late. You're going to have a few more people start to come in late. It, it's been studied to death. There was actually a study. Um, I can't cite you the specific study. I'll just tell you what happened in it. They did a study where they looked at pay rates. And let's say they took 10 people and they paid everybody the same except one person. They say, we're going to pay you $2 more per hour. Okay. The mo- they studied their motivation, and that individual was getting paid more, $2 more an hour, was a little bit more motivated than everybody else, okay? Well, then, two weeks later, they called him into HR and said, we made a mistake. 
we actually, you were getting paid $2 less than everybody else. I'm sorry to tell you that. So he was this motivated. How do you think the motivation shift is? Way down. It didn't go like this, proportionate. It went way down here because they felt this slight, this inequity. And so what ends up happening if there's an inequity in the, a disturbance in the force, so to speak, people start to adjust their efforts. Um, they may come in on time, but they may work less throughout the day, put forth less effort. So if they were producing 100 widgets a day, they may only produce 80 or 90 to make up for the fact that Tommy's coming in late and nobody's addressing that and everybody knows it. So when you don't address poor performance as a manager, if you're not controlling that, what ends up happening is everybody's aware that there's a poor performer and they're not doing anything about it. So I guess I can be a poor performer too. And people have this tendency towards the mean. You, you've all seen a bell curve before, correct? Yep, you know, distributions. So what happens is there's this central tendency, this homeostasis. And so if somebody's coming in late and everybody's is on time, there's this central tendency toward the middle. And so you'll find people move towards that, uh, that mean or that central tendency. All right. So when it comes to planning, setting the organization's vision, goals, and objectives, the vision is more than a goal, an encompassing explanation of why the organization exists and where it's trying to go. It can be a little vague, but it needs to have some, some specificity to it. Like if you say our vision is to change the world, that's great. What do you mean by that? I mean, how do you mean change the world? I mean, it needs to have something like a little more defined by that. We want to change the world by providing the healthiest product, you know, this product X, you know, against all the other competitors. That's a little more specific. That tells me exactly what I need to know. Goals is the broad or are the broad long-term accomplishments of an organization uh, that they wish to attain and objectives are specific short-term statements dealing, or sorry, detailing how to achieve the organization's goals. So um, tasks, objectives, goals to the vision. These are breakdowns of how we accomplish our, our, our vision or our ultimate objective. And so you guys are actually doing this right now. You're here in this class today. This is a task. Come to class, do your homework. Those are tasks. That task helps you complete the objective by finishing this course. By completing this course, you're uh, working towards the goal of getting a degree. And getting a degree helps you align with your vision of success for life, right? So you guys are actually embodying this organizational philosophy of how we do planning. And guess what? I told you in the beginning of the semester that there's a lot of overlap between what we teach in business and your personal life. That's just another example of how this applies both in business and to you personally. And so a mission statement is an outline of the fundamental purposes of an organization, including the organization's self-concept, its philosophy, its long-term survival needs, its customer needs, its social responsibility, and the nature of its product or service. Can anybody think of a mission statement from a company that you might like or admire? Anything come to mind? Kind of. Impossible is nothing. Love your neighbor. Yeah. What do you think about their logo? Do you work there or have you worked? Okay. Do, you, do they have the little like heart thing? Yeah. It's, the, it's a heart and then a white in the middle. What do you think about that? I mean, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. 
Yeah. I don't, I looked at their logo and it took me a while. The reason I asked because I studied it for a while. I was like, I don't understand what I'm looking at. Like, I thought it was a difficult thing to understand. And so when I saw it, I was like, I don't really, because it, it has like YN in the middle. So I know now it's love your neighbor, but I just didn't get it at first. So that's one thing that I would advise is like if you're looking at a logo and it takes your customer a while to understand it or get it, it's probably not a great you know logo. I'm not down on it, but it just took me a minute to know. It, it took me a minute to like, at first. I was like, mm-hmm. heart YN. I didn't. It took me a minute to just look. Okay, what is that? I don't. I don't get it. But like I said, now that I get it, I understand. But I just think uh, it needs to be a little more. Instantly, you get what that is, you know. So, all right. So let's talk about SWOT analysis. If I can teach you nothing else in this class that will serve you well as a business student, I want to teach you about SWOT analysis because this will make you look and sound like you know what you're talking about when it comes to business. Seriously, if you can go into a business and say we're going to do a SWOT analysis, and I've been a part of SWOT analyses that big organizations are. Uh, we've got third-party vendors will come in and do a SWOT analysis. They look at organizations' strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Um, how do we get our goal from here? Strategic, tactical, operational, and contingency plan. So um, th- think about, let's do a SWOT analysis real quick. Let's name a company that everybody knows. Name a company that everybody would know, know about. Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. I, I, she's as good as not everybody goes to she, but we'll do Chick-fil-A. Everybody knows Chick-fil-A. This pen is not good. Maybe this one will be good. Maybe. Better. Chick-fil-A. Okay. So that's our company. And when I do a quick SWAT, I just do an SW and uh, strength, opportunities, and threats. Okay. What makes Chick-fil-A strong? CS, no doubt. What else makes them strong? You're a Chick-fil-A person, right? Yeah. It's delicious. I'm going to put yummy. Yummy. I think it's good. What else makes Chick-fil-A good? What's, what's their strengths? I would say their mission. Okay. So mission. Any other strengths? I'll put them out here if you got some. What you got? Anything else? <coughs> Sometimes we're accurate, but it can also be a weakness. Why do you say it's a weakness? Well, because it just depends on like, who's working, who actually cares. Like, I got you. Yeah. Or who doesn't care, Any other weaknesses or strengths you can think of? Yeah, clean, maybe. Any other strengths? I know you love Chick-fil-A, don't lie. So what about weaknesses? What makes, uh, and by the way, let me just differentiate this. Um, strengths and weaknesses are internal, and opportunities and threats are external. So internal, what are weaknesses for Chick-fil-A? I got one. It's kind of pricey. What's the other weakness? Uh, they don't chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Only chicken. Another weakness is long lines. Oh, yeah. Like, I've been surveyed by Chick-fil-A, and one of the questions was, have you not gone to Chick-fil-A because of line length in the past, whatever? And it's true, like, 
Yes, I, that's their biggest thing, man. If they just opened up a satellite Chick-fil-A, I'm, listen, I'm being real. If they opened up a satellite Chick-fil-A out here, just a little box, and all they sold was fries and sandwiches, that's it, they would murder it every day. I, I bet they do like 1,000, 2,000 sandwiches every day. All right, what's another weakness from Chick-fil-A? Okay, not Sunday. Okay. I know. I think, I think that works in their favor because, but multiple times in my life, I've gone to Chick Fil A on Sunday. Oh my God, they're close. You know. What's another weakness from Chick Fil A? Uh huh. Menu. Anything else that's a weakness? Oh yeah, parking. I've seen people get in accidents in the parking lot. I think more than once. (laughs) Have you seen fender penders? Yeah. So those are weaknesses. Okay, what about opportunities? External opportunities for Chick-fil-A. Who? Say it one more time. I'm hard of hearing. Foreign markets. Thank you. Foreign markets. Okay, what's another opportunity for Chick-fil-A? Opportunity. Support farmers. So outreach. I know they do some. What's what do they do this outreach? Do you know, Gracie? Like that they, you know, Firehouse has the fire, fire and EMS people that they kind of connect with. Do they have a group that they're really connected with? I know. I, I'm trying to think. Can think of anything that I know about? Um, other opportunities for Chick Fil A. I guess new menu items. I think, um, I really think that the mini Chick-fil-A, like, more locations. Um, the, the problem with Chick-fil-A is that it's so expensive to open up a traditional Chick-fil-A restaurant, probably a million bucks, and I'm being real. So that limits the opportunity for expansion if it's going to cost me a million dollars every time. But if I can open up a micro Chick-fil-A that only serves sandwiches and fries, that's all we do. No nugget. I mean, it's just, if you want a sandwich, come get it. I think there's an opportunity there. What about threats? What are threats to Chick-fil-A? Okay, so competition? Competition? What about the economy? I mean, people, as inflation goes up, people have less disposable income. They're thinking, I really want that Chick-fil-A, but peanut butter is going to have to do it for today, you know. So what about... um, other threats. Uh, oh, it seems like there's something else on top of my mind. Politics. Who? Politics. Why do you say that? Uh, their oh, ideologies. Mm-hmm. Yep, they, they will pick certain topics that they stand for or are against, and that, that does uh, maybe marginalize some groups that may not want to go to Chick-fil-A. That's a good observation. Um, God, there was another one that was on the tip of my tongue that was a threat. Other threats that you could think of? Competition, the economy, political ideology. Oh, I know. Um, culture. And I'm going to put health beside it. You know, Chick-fil-A is not exactly health food. And we may come to a point in our country, we're not there yet, 
It says, you know what? We're, we're moving beyond fast food. We've been eating it for half a century. We're, we're, we're done with that. You know, we're just going to eat like whole, whole foods that are not processed. Our entire culture could shift to that. It could happen. And that... You're right. I don't, doubt, I don't disagree with you, but people more and more are looking for healthy options, you know, for themselves and their kids. And so I would seriously take that seriously if I was a fast food vendor and think if we have a major cultural shift away from fast food, and it can happen, don't think it can't, uh, where people say, you know what, I'm just not going to go eat this stuff anymore. And in fact, not, not my kids, but their kids might say, gross, I can't believe you guys used to eat Domino's and McDonald's and Chick-fil-A. That's disgusting. It could happen, dude. It really could happen. So I would, I would think about how do we do that. Um, I would say another opportunity for the Chick-fil-A would be um, differentiation, meaning that like, they might open up a different franchise, like a, something under the shelter or the uh, umbrella of Chick-fil-A that might have a different offering to hit a different part of the market. Anything else we could think of from the concept of strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? So we'll pause it right here and say that if you were going to do a, an actual SWAT, what would happen is you would sit in a focus group with yourself or your colleagues, other, other stakeholders, and you would try to come up with a comprehensive list just like this, except it might have 20 items under each one, 20 strengths, 20 weaknesses, 20 opportunities, and 20 threats. And then you would expand on each one of those. You would write out, this is why this is their strength, and just elaborate, elaborate, and do research, and really dig into it. And by the time you're done, you might have a one to 200 page SWOT analysis that identifies what they're strong at, what they're weak at, where their opportunities are and where their threats are. Why is this valuable to organizations to know this? If you're an organization, why would you want to know about the different aspects of a SWOT analysis? You could what? You could pitch it to investors. It could also be the genesis for change. You know, if there's something, if you see a threat, don't wait until it smacks you in the face, right? You can address it right now. And so types of planning, we're going to jump back into this. Any questions on SWAT, though, before we move on? It's a valuable tool. So different types of planning. There's strategic, tactical, operational, contingency. Strategic is the major goals of the organization. Tactical is the detailed short-term statements about what is to be done. So strategic, once again, long-term tactical, short-term, operational, setting work standards and schedules necessary to implement the company's tactical objectives. This is how we operate. This is what it takes to achieve these long-term goals. And then contingency planning is preparing alternative courses of action that may be used if the primary plans don't achieve the organizational's objective. If this does not work, what are we gonna do? Kinda need to think about that because at the end of the day, owners and shareholders are still going to be expecting profit, right? Questions? I thought, okay. So, not all firms bother to make contingency plans. If something changes the market, such as company uh, may be slow to respond, most organizations do strategic, tactical, and operational plans. So once again, strategic is long and broad. Tactical is short and specific. Contingency is what they do in case this doesn't work. And operational is creating those work standards. All right, I actually have a brief video. Um, so this was a part of the book that talked about artificial intelligence. Does anybody use ChatGPT? John's like, I don't want to say. I use it. I use it almost every day. Um, what's that? What's that? Yeah. And I'll tell you how I use it. 
So I'll write an email and I'll copy that email to ChatGPT and say, and say, is this grammatically correct? And it will analyze my email and tell me if it's if I've made a mistake and identify that so I won't send out typos and things like that. You know, So I use it to help make me a better writer. I also use it to summarize works. So like I had a 37-page document that I needed to get through. I was able to take chunks of that document, put it into it, and I chopped it down to four pages. You've done this? Yeah. So like that's extremely valuable to me is to be able to summarize. I have a colleague that likes to write two-page emails, single-spaced. So I will take his entire email and copy it in the chat GPT and say reduce this down to 10 bullets. A concise, and it will reduce it down to 10 bullets and give me a summary of what that you know, email's about. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good use cases that are not plagiarizing or cheating. And so, um, but with AI, there's a great video that I've shown to other classes that talks about uh, how AI is going to replace some jobs. I've already got it queued up. I thought I did. Hang on a second. Maybe pull it up on this other one. Yep, right, Internet Explorer. Yep, so let's watch this real quick. Chapter 8, which is Structuring Organizations for Today's Challenges. Fun times. Um, I do have your papers from the founder graded. I'll turn those in to you at the end of class. Also, um, Chapter 7, I believe, let me check my calendar, is due this week. I asked you to go ahead and start working on it just to have it, but Chapter 7 quiz due, yeah. So you've got a little bit of leeway on that, but go ahead and work on that. Chapter 7 quiz. Chapter 8 won't be due till next week. So, all right, just want to double check we're good on that. Um, also, while I'm thinking about it, uh, might as well go ahead and mention this too. I have a conference coming up next week, which is the PI conference in D.C. And let's see, that is the 24th and the 26th. So next week I will not be here. I will make arrangements for something to do remotely, okay? So just know you won't be here next Tuesday and next Thursday. I'm, I'll be in Washington, D.C. So if you do come, you can be with me in spirit, but I won't be here physically. So, all right, but I'll remind you on Thursday about that, and I will tell you it'll be something um, something simple that you could do each day that will be an assignment, and there'll be some something that you could do for, uh, like, basically participation on those days, okay? Any argument with me on that for not coming next week? No? No? Okay, cool. All right, so back to Chapter 8. And the learning outcomes for this chapter are outline the basic principles of organizational management, compare the organizational theories of FAIL and Weber, evaluate the choices managers make in structuring organizations, contrast the various organizational models, identify the benefits of uh, inter-firm cooperation and coordination, and explain how organizational <laughs> culture can help businesses adapt to change. So a lot to take in here. This is a good chapter. Um, a lot of good things to talk about. So building an organization from the bottom up, first things first is we want to create a division of labor, who's doing what. Divide tasks through job specialization, and I will elaborate on each one of these because this goes into a lot of uh, management theory. Set up teams or departmentalization. Allocate resources, assign specific tasks. Establish procedures, develop an organizational chart, 
and adjust to new realities. This is what's happening. Um, this is a very logical way to organize an organization. Um, having groups or departments of individuals that do certain things. If you look at any organization, you will find a degree of departmentalization where you've got marketing that's doing one thing, you've got HR that's doing something, you've got uh, sales or whoever's in, in contact with your customer doing something, you've got a management department. I mean, there's so many different facets of what go into an organization or business and depending on what type of business organization it is, we'll, I guess, decide what type of departmentalization we need to have. Even nonprofits like churches have different departments or different committees that handle various aspects of uh, managing that organization. And so evolving business environments, there's a lot of things to consider. And in my lifetime, and your, well, basically in your lifetime, uh, I remember, does anybody remember what it used to be like before the internet? Vaguely, maybe? Vaguely, yeah. You were born around late nineties, yeah. What ninety nine? Who ninety eight? I graduated high school ninety eight. So, um, <laughs> but I remember the world without the internet, and it's hard to wrap your mind around that now. And my kids were like, "How did you live? Like, how how did you even breathe? You know, without the internet?" And it seems hard to wrap your mind around like pre technology, you know, pre advanced technology days, but. That was a thing. And so, but because we have the internet and now, as Julie mentioned, getting into AI, it's going to be a paradigm shift. We're going to get used to, have to get used to a changing economy. Um, the jobs we have now, big chunks of them won't be here in 20 years. Big chunks of them. Cashiers, drivers, information technology folks. I mean, coders even. AI will write code for us. Things like that. I mean... Uh, any type of code that a coder could write, it might take them days to write that code where it will take an AI seconds or minutes to write that code and write it in a better way. In fact, they've done tests to see, they had a coder ask an AI, write a code and then ask an AI to write a code to do that thing. And the AI may have had a slight variation on that code, but it effectively did the same function that you know the, the coder wrote. Uh, so you've got that intellectual power that we won't need anymore. You know, you can, I, I really, I know this is really idealistic and it won't happen in my lifetime, but I would love to see our society go 50, 100 years from now to a society where machines basically do all the factors of production and we could just live our lives kind of leisurely. We go, we can go fishing, grow crops or do what it is. You know, if, you, if, you're, if your goal is to paint or write or whatever you want to do, travel, Sure. You know, if you want to travel the world, you've got machines that will take you all around the world for very low cost. You know, I mean, that's just because technology is extremely deflationary. So um, declining economy, this is, this is something that we have to, have to uh, deal with. So you probably have a stereotypical idea of what the American dream is. When I say American dream, what stereotype comes to your mind? Yes, sir. A nuclear family. Okay. What else? Success, what else? So, just to give you a stereotype in my mind, when I was in high school, there was a ton of pressure that everybody must go to a four-year college and get a four-year degree. That was, that was pretty much the societal pressure that was on myself and all my classmates. But what we discovered is um, our society does not need everybody to go get a four-year degree. And that's a hard reality. And our society has never needed 
every single individual to go get a four-year degree for the purposes of work. You could get one for the purposes of knowledge, but for the purposes of work, we need a lot more nurses, technicians, drivers, things like that right now that you can learn at a two-year institution, you know. So that's one of the big value uh, propositions that a two-year college offers. But that being said, um, growing up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you had this boom of people that had four-year degrees, and there was not a lot of those on the market. So you came out making premium dollars for those degrees. But as in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, uh, there's still a ton of people getting degrees now, but there's just not a ton of positions that really match up. And so you have people that graduate college with a four-year degree making very low wages right out of college, you know, for some jobs. It depends on what it is. And so, like, uh, society is reevaluating that and saying, you know, we don't see the value proposition for students going directly to a four-year. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but there's a ton of value in coming to a two-year to begin with, getting some career uh, exploration done and figuring out what you could do from a technical standpoint to earn a good degree. Um, but another deal to decline in economy in my lifetime, my parents did very well in the 80s and 90s because they were making good money and everything was five or ten times cheaper than it is now. Now, gas, when I was 16 years old, was 89 cents a gallon. And so, um, like, if you look at salary stagnation over decades versus gas inflation alone, that one metric, gas is 4 x in the past 25 years, but salaries have not 4 x in the past 25 years. So just that one metric alone, housing inflation. Housing is insanely expensive now. Um, you know, I, I just bought a house two years ago, and... The house I bought went up in value about 25% in just two years, just because of housing inflation. And you see, so you're seeing those kinds of pressures that are put on everyday citizens. Uh, faster technology changes, pressure to protect the environment. Um, just to speak briefly on the faster technology change, AI is, is exponentially increasing so much that it's almost becoming close to a vertical line the exponential growth of how fast it's developing. Uh, changing customer expectations, high quality products with fast, friendly service, and at all and, and all at low cost. So um, there's this triangle they present in production that talks about cheap, fast, or quality, and customers want all three. Uh, that's a terrible thing, but cheap, fast, quality. Usually when a customer uh, requests something, like if you want to have something made, like a custom piece or whatever, you can get it cheap and fast, but the quality is going to suffer, right? Or you can get it um, cheap, but that's going to compromise the qualities, but it would be fast, you know? So you're, you're never going to, it's hard to get all three unless you got a ton of cash, you know? But then that goes against the cheap thing. So, um, so there's, there's going to be an imbalance at one of those, but customers... They want the best possible quality at the best possible price as fast as possible. And so, yeah, and like we, there's this divide between Walmart and Target. Customers, our students will tell me, Target has better stuff, but it's at higher prices, right? Do you agree with that statement? Target has generally better quality products, but the prices are a little bit higher. You disagree? You think it's about the same as Walmart? It's probably close to being the same, but the difference maker on why the price is different is because uh, Target seems to have more people on hand. 
So they're getting, they're, they're going for better customer service. Because uh, if I walk, it's easy for me to find somebody that works at Target. It's difficult for me to find somebody that works at Walmart. Um, they do have those people walking around the aisles now that are shoppers. But I think you're not supposed to talk to them. <laughs> you know, like, don't bother me. I'm, I'm, I'm buying stuff for my customers. So, All right, so how much change in a decade or two? So mobile phone use went from 34% in 2000 to 95% in 2020. I was an anti-cell phone person for a long time. My first cell phone my, my, is my dad's, but I used it in my car when I was 16. was one of those bag phones about the size of a football. You picked it up and it had a cord connected to it. That was my first cell phone. Uh, and um, that, like, after I got that, I was like, you know what? I don't want a cell phone for a while. So I resisted getting a cell phone for a long time. And now it's an indispensable piece of technology. I used it uh, Sunday, uh, Saturday when I went to my cousin's wedding. And I said, I don't know how people navigated without GPS before. I would have not found this place uh, or easily found this place. Number of active blogs went from 12,000 uh, 12, to 600 million. Amount of reality TV shows, four to 750. Daily email sent went from 12 billion to 265 billion. 265 billion emails a day, that's insane. Number of hours spent online per week went from 2.7 to 24. People spend a whole day a week online. That's, that's pretty nuts to think about it. Um, number of daily newspapers, I went from 1480 to 1186. Those are in decline. Number of daily letters mailed, 207 billion to 187 billion in decline because of email. <coughs> Amount of books published, 282,000 to 1.68 million. That's uh, because it's easy to publish now for free. Uh, iTunes downloads, zero to 300 billion. Wow. Percent of obese Americans, 26 to 40. So that's just some interesting changes that, uh, as a business person, might, be, might find some of that interesting to find out you know, like for me, the daily letter mail business might not be something I'd be interested in going to as a business person. But if I know I've got a lot of eyeballs online, that might be something that I would want to consider. That's where the consumer is. So development of organizational design, mass productions of goods led to, to complexities in organizing businesses. The economies of scale, companies can reduce their production costs by purchasing raw materials in bulk. Have you ever, like, bought something and they said... If you buy X amount or more, they'll reduce the price for you. Does anybody ever bought something like that? Like if you buy, I'm trying to think of an example. You know, if you buy at one, then you'll get this price, but if you buy five or more, you'll get it at a, at a cheaper rate. Yeah, the same thing applies to business. They, uh, other, like wholesalers like to sell in bulk and they like to move large volumes at a time, even if they make less per unit because that's cash flow they've got coming in and they're still making a profit per unit. And so, yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll readily move that out the door and make a little bit less per unit, per unit but overall make more money. Uh, yes, ma'am. What's that? Okay. There you go, yeah. Yep, and same kind of concept for businesses. So if a business would buy a thousand mattresses at a time, right? And so they'll say, if you buy a thousand mattresses, it'll be you know one hundred sixty thousand dollars or whatever. But if you buy the box springs with it, we'll cut you a deal, and we'll give you X amount of percentage off of both. And businesses look at that and they think, you know, if I do that, if I buy ahead and buy the bulk order, I'm going to save money on the on the on the end of it and make more money. The average cost of goods decreased as production levels rise. Yep. So 
If I had to make a single chicken McNugget, it would be very expensive to do that. But if I created a process to make thousands of nuggets a minute, the cost per nugget would go way down because I've got all this infrastructure in place to make it easy to do that. Two influential thinkers emerged, Fail and Max Weber, or Henry Fail and Max Weber. So Fail's principles of organization, this, these are two thought leaders when it comes to the management theory. Fail's principles of organization is unity of command. Unity of command means that what I say needs to be like, there needs to be a unity in, in that thought. So basically myself, my manager, and their manager all need to be in agreement about how we're managing this organization. If I say we're doing this and my boss says we're doing that, that creates a problem, doesn't it? Because let's say that all of you work for me and I say we're doing this and then my boss says, no, we're doing that. What, how do you guys react to that? We'll say, well, we work for Ryan. He's our supervisor. But his boss said we need to do something different. That creates a discontinuity and it creates a disorganization. The hierarchy of authority, chain of command. So you have... Uh, managers over a set number of people and then a manager that manages those managers and so on and so forth. Subordination of individual interests to the general interest, meaning that we're concerned about you as an individual, but your individual concerns have to be put aside for the greater good of the whole. What that meant, so let's say this, let's say that you normally work eight hours a day, but we get behind. And so in order to accomplish an organizational goal, we might have to ask the whole team to work one extra hour a day for the rest of the week. And that's an individual inconvenience, but it's in the interest of the entire group that we do this so we can get, meet our production deadlines. Authority, um, old school management theory dealt with authority and this idea of sticks and carrots. Carrots meaning incentives and sticks meaning punishments. If you, you're gonna do this or else, or I'm gonna write you up, I'm gonna fire you. Those types of incentives and, and punishments are very ineffective in my mind. Like, I would rather instead of saying you will do this or get fired or you will do this or get written up, all that does is build resentment. It breaks down communication and it puts up barriers between people. I would rather say, I need help with this. Do you think you can help me or come up with an idea that you think would be a good way to, to approach this? And not everybody's responsive to that. I'll say that some people need a different degree of management. So you have to basically um, customize your management approach to every individual. Some individuals need a lot of micromanagement. They need you to stand over them and kind of direct what they're doing. You need a lot of follow-up. Uh, you need to have people, uh, give people expectations let them, and give them uh, realistic deadlines. Other people don't need that. They don't need you. You tell them one time to do something, they go and do it. There doesn't need to be a ton of follow-up. Um, degree of centralization, meaning the amount of control the central managing unit has. Clear communication, can, I'm sorry, clear communication channels. This is probably the most important thing up here, uh, aside from probably unity unit of command. But that clear communication, be transparent. People, this idea of whispers and grapevines and closed door sessions where people are talked about, I don't like any of that. I try to put everything on the table. In fact, I send out a weekly recap to my entire team, tells them pretty much everything we've been working on this week, and I communicate everything to everybody so they all know uh, this is what's happening. I copy my entire team, I copy my boss and my boss's boss, so everybody knows this is what we're working on right now, this is what we've been working on, and this is what we've got coming up. Um, orders, 
equity and esprit de corps. What about equity? You hear that word a lot nowadays. What does equity mean? Or this, and I've told, I might have told you this idea of equity versus equality. Did I tell you the fence example? Okay, the fence example once again is if you've got um, if you've got a bunch of people lined up across the fence and they're all trying to get over the fence, <clears throat> you've got some short people and some tall people. The tall people are going to have an easier time getting over the fence. But if I give everybody an equal step step stool that's two feet tall, that that disproportionately advantages the even tall people, and the short people still might not be able to reach it even with a two-foot stool. But if I gave the short people a four-foot stool, stool and gave the tall people a two-foot stool, the tall people might say, well, they got two extra feet I didn't get, but yet you have a natural height that gives you that ability to get over the fence anyway. So how does this relate to the workplace? How do you think equity might be a conversation that we have in the workplace? Not everybody might have the same uh, abilities, advantages, uh, or abilities in the workplace. And so um, you want to make sure that you're doing things that are equitable, where people feel like um, that everybody is getting what they need in order to successfully complete their job. I'll give you one example. Let's say you've got two departments that you manage, and you get $10,000 given to you from management. Well, an Equitable or an equal thing to do would be give each department $5,000, right? But the needs are great over here, and everybody knows the needs are great. And because you know the needs are great, you decide to give $8,000 in this department and $2,000 over here. I mean, that might seem unfair. It might not seem equal. But from an honest, objective standpoint, the need is greater over here. And that's just how, that's sometimes what we have to do in management, make those decisions. And so... That's the big, the big difference between uh, equity and equality. Characteristics of organizations based on the principles. Employees have no more than one boss, which is a line of authority, lines of authority are clear. Rigid organizations that often don't respond to customers quickly. I have a friend right now that has a workplace they're in, and they have a boss, but they also have a supervisor. <clears throat> and the supervisor is over the department they work in, but they, they all report to a boss that's the manager. And that creates a lot of problems, let me tell you. A lot of problems because the supervisor really doesn't have any authority. They all report to the, the manager. But the supervisor thinks they have authority. And the reason why the supervisor is in place to begin with is so the manager who's in charge doesn't have to mess with any of the other employees. Go to the supervisor, okay? So they created this position to create a barrier between themselves and the other employees. And, but in so doing, you create two lines of authority. One of them is real and the other one is perceived. It cre has created a lot of problems. So um, rigid organizations that uh, often don't respond to customers quickly, yeah, you want to be able to respond to your uh, customers quickly. Make sure that's your number one priority is being able to take care of the customer. If you can't do that, all this other stuff goes out the window. So this is fail. He introduced several management principles still follow today, including the idea that each worker should report to only one manager. And that manager, in turn, should have the right to give orders for others to follow and the power to enforce them. So which of FAIL's principles have you observed? Any of you observe these yourself? Maybe, maybe not. Yes, sir, what's up? You've seen those? Okay, absolutely. They'll, they will, the crazy thing about this class is 
Now that you've seen this, these will start to manifest in your life. You'll say, hey, Jeopardy question. Henry Fail, okay. Like, unity of command, I get that. I was here. Um, so Max Weber was another uh, theorist, and he had organizational theory. Employees just need to do what they're told. In addition to Fail's principle, Weber emphasized job descriptions. This is a, another step further beyond this division of labor. Written rules, decision gu guidelines, and detailed records um, consistent procedures, regulations, and policy, staffing and promotion based on qualifications. So let's talk about these a little bit. So job description, why do you think that's important? Why is it important to have a written job description? What's up, Angel? Sets an expectation. Did you have a comment? No? You fake me out, you know. So... <laughs> Um, absolutely, you have an expectation of what the job's going to entail. And from there, um, one interesting thing that pops up in job descriptions nowadays especially, um, there's usually a line at the bottom that says any, um, I guess, I'm trying to think how exactly it would be worded, but something like to the regard of any duty, any reasonable duty or request from the organization. So basically we're hiring you to do this, but there's a broad spectrum of any duty or request within reason that we would ask of you. That also is a part of your job description. So, um, and my wife falls into that. She, um, she was hired at, during COVID as a greeter patient check-in person at a clinic. So imagine how stressful that was. You've got COVID going on. People don't know a lot and you got all these people coming up and coughing on you. You know, it's a lot of fun. Um, but since then she's moved up a couple uh, ranks at her work. Uh, but the job description she was hired for is quite different than what she's doing now, that she's transitioned. Um, written rules, decision guidelines, and detailed records. Why do you think written rules are important? I'll tell you why. Because no matter what you have in writing, if you think you have enough or you don't have enough, something will happen to make you question, do I have this in writing somewhere? And if I don't, do I need to get it in writing? Because every organization I've worked at has had a scenario pop up where we had to check the procedure manual to see if there's a proper way to address the situation. It happens. It will happen to you guys. Yes, sir. Yeah, at Adidas, there was a, uh, well, not a problem, but just a standardization problem with, like, uh, basically everything. Because, like, uh, for the shoe displays, all the sizes would vary, so it'd be, like, in men's, it would be, Right. But then um, one of the employees who later became manager, because she ranked up, but uh, she would write down, or, like printed and laminated, the shoe size display like standards. And it's like size nine for men, size seven for women, size three for kids. And so once that was done, it was all standardized. Everything looked nice and uniform. Everything was nice and neat. Tiny comment. Nice. Yeah. So having written rules gives people this next thing, which is consistency. Like, if you speed and get pulled over, there's an expectation that you're going to get a ticket, right? That's consistent. And same thing in the workplace. If you break a rule or violate a policy, it shouldn't be a question of what's going to happen to you. It should be known. This is what's going to happen, you know? Like, I had to I – I really didn't like my job at Walmart. I want to use the word hate, but I'm hesitant to use that because I actually did learn a lot from that experience. And one of the things I learned is um, – Unfortunately, having to fire people and when the process that's involved with that. And 
almost everybody that I had to terminate, which was probably a couple dozen, they would come in and there would be an excuse or, or like the four stages of grief or four or five stages of grief they went through, you know, uh, come on, this isn't happening, you know, denial, and then they start bargaining and all that stuff. But it should be known, it shouldn't be a question of uh, what's about to happen. You know that, you know, you violated this policy or you were absent so many times and, you know, this is what's going to happen. Same, same thing's true in students. We have a written uh, rule set for this classroom with a syllabus. And if you violate the policy, like the big one's attendance, you know, like if you show, if you miss so many class periods, you're going to be, you know, dropped from the class. And same thing, if you don't turn in enough homework, you're going to fail the class. These are known things. Um, staffing and promotion based on qualifications. The big one that we run into here is special interest or favoritism. Um, and this happens on almost every place I've ever worked to where um, you have people that are friends of the manager and those friends get taken care of. They get promoted more often, get more raises more often. Yeah, that leads to a lot of challenges for individuals. So this is Max Weber. Max Weber promoted an organizational structure composed of middle managers who implemented the orders of top managers. He believed less educated workers were best managed if supervisors gave them strict rules and regulations to follow and monitor their performance. That's a heck of a statement. Less educated workers were best managed if supervisors gave them strict rules and regulations. So, I don't know. That's that's a, that's that's. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around, but that's the way they thought, you know, because there's a lot of people that have just their high school diploma that are really good workers, you know, that are normal people, everyday people. There, there, there doesn't need to be any elitism about education. My wife never went to college. I think she's a great worker. I am biased. My dad never went to college, you know, and I think he had a good career. So um, this, this elitism about the education thing, uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. But he believed in having strict rules and regulations in place. I think the main takeaway for, for Weber is consistency. You want to be consistent and fair. Whatever you do for one person, you want to do for the other. Um, I had a teacher that scared me in graduate school. Her name was Dr. Ellen Black. You would go to her class, and she, was, she, would, <laughs> she would speak to you in a way that raised the hair on your neck. She said, you will not be late for this class. If you're late, the door will be closed. You will not be welcome. You will be absent. And that's the kind of tone she said. She said, um, I'm trying to think of another example of something that scared me. Like, uh, basically, you know, if you turn in your work late, I will not accept late work. You will get a zero for that work. If you do this, you know, if you go below this threshold, I will drop you from this class. You will not get credit. Uh, you will have to repeat this course. I mean, it's very, like, strict regiment. Yes, sir. Do you have a comment, Logan? Oh, yeah. What did you mean? It was, at, it was um, an education course at Liberty, so... But she was a K-12 educator in the past. And I, on that note, I had a friend who was a very sweet young lady. I worked with her at University of Malov. Very soft-spoken, very sweet. She left and went to teach middle school. And when I went to visit to do a classroom presentation, she was yelling at these kids. And it was like, I don't want to freak you guys out, but I will real quick. She's like, kids! Like that, like, oh, my God, like, what just happened? You know, really projecting the voice and I was just like oh my god like that's that's but that tone it, it's like an authoritative tone that really just snaps people into place you know because those kids would freeze up and it was like you know they they knew it was time to chill out and so what you'll find I think in your careers in management is that you'll have to have different tones with different people you'll know who you can trust to do good work you'll learn that 
You also learn who's not a good performer. And you'll also learn that you have to let go of the bad performers. And when I was, when I was 25 years old working at Walmart as a manager, I did not want to have difficult conversations with people about their place in the organization. Now, as a 44-year-old, we've established that's where I'm at now, um, I would rather be up front with somebody and ask them about their commitment level and say, hey, I noticed that this is not, you're not, this is not going well. And I, believe it or not, I've had conversations like this in recent years. I said, I, I realize that things are not going well or this, you're having this challenge. What's your, where are you at on this? Where, where do you feel like your place is here? Are you thinking about some other opportunities down the road? And by asking that question, if I asked you, like, I know you're about to get a job, Garrett. If, I, if your boss comes to you in a couple months and says, you know, you know, we've been watching your performance and kind of wondering, you know, where, where are you at? Where do you think, are you thinking about staying with us? Are you thinking about moving on? I'm just trying to get a litmus test on where you're at. But if you're not, if you know you're not performing well, um, that might be a signal to you is that, oh, my God, they're thinking about letting me go, you know. So you might prompt, that might prompt you to go ahead and look for something else. Um, but I think it's a good thing to go ahead and tell people, you know, I don't know if you guys have broken up with a significant other or not, but uh, it's a hard thing in your early years, but it gets easier, I guess. But uh, I would just say that it's a good thing and a, and a good thing, a, a right thing to do to tell somebody if you know that a relationship's not going to work out. Same thing's true in business. Um, I had a, another colleague that had a small business. He said, I'll hire anybody that I think is, is worthy for the first 90 days. And if it's not going to work, we have an evaluation at 90 days and there's a separation, no questions, no, no hard feelings, no questions asked. If I tell them right at that 90-day point or any time before that that this is not a good fit, we're just going to part ways and move on, and it's, it's no hard feelings. So that, that's true in your personal relationships. It's true in business. You can't really cut your family loose like your, your blood relatives, but significant others, you know. Um, but that being said, uh, any questions on anything we've talked about so far with Henry Fayo and Max Weber, Unity of command, authority, things like that so far. This is just kind of the precursor to the rest of the chapter. We'll follow up on uh, Thursday with the rest of the chapter, and I'll remind you guys about next week and October 31st as well, okay? All right, guys, I appreciate you. Have a good rest of your day. I'll see you Thursday. Mm -hmm.